everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm your host, Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Uh, yeah, it's going good. I'm yeah, I'm still adjusting to being on this side of the partnership, um, mm-hmm. but I kind of like it. It's all right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. I'm now feeling comfortable doing the intro to this show because I think as anyone who has guested on this show will test over the course of like the last year it has been a process of me very slowly getting used to the idea of starting up the podcast and knowing what to say and like doing all of the like spiel to like try and let people know what the hell this show is mm, you're like baby and dirty dancing at first you were kind of tentative steps into the world of mm. erotic kind of gyrating and now yes. you're, you know you're having the time of your life ed i am uh and i owe it all to someone not sure oh, who. So close, so close. <laughs> lifting, lifting you above my head in my thoughts. Um, okay, so we'll get into the the news for this week. It's not been the he- the, the heaviest of weeks, but there are mm. a few kind of stories that leapt out to us. Um, first off, we'll kind of do a, a little follow-up to last week where we were talking about the Alamo Drafthouse, Fantastic Fest, Harry Knowles scandal. The uh, most kind of obvious thing there is that Harry Knowles has following the uh, allegations of sexual assault that were levied against him by, in the end, multiple people. Because once, you know, it's, it's one of those things when it, there's never just one. Mm. Um, there's, usually there's been a string of these people and, you know, the dam bursts and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, this guy is like a scumbag. <laughs> and the, there's a, a lot of people who will attest to that. Uh, he has supposedly stepped down as the, the editor-in-chief of Ain't It Cool News. And the reason I say supposedly is that the first post kind of announcing that was allegedly written by his sister and his sister apparently writes exactly the same way that he does which Mm. is to say like terribly (laughs) and that caused a lot of people to speculate that maybe he hasn't stepped down he's just there posting under another name which uh, wouldn't seem out of character with with what we've heard so far about him Mm, yeah it's it's been a weird one this week because uh, for me like any cool news has always been something i've been aware of Mm-hmm. Um, and when I first realized there were people writing about films on the internet, I remember looking at it and mm-hmm. thinking, this is awful and assault on my eyes. <laughs> like, cause it was always like bright yellow or writing or whatever. Um, it still is. Is it they still? Haven't oh, okay. update, they haven't updated it. It's still oh, wow. one of the most garish and assaultive things on the internet. But like that always goatsy. The, 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 always the bylines are always like quid fucking loved this film or whatever and i'm just like oh this just seems like such an egregious approach to writing about films Mm. and then i remember the uh, i remember the only review i'd ever read of his was uh return of the king i think which i'd Mm. recommend people like seek out because it is the most masturbatory review i think i've ever read um which goes off on the wildest uh of uh, kind of campaigns to get Sean Astin an Oscar, which even Sean Astin's mum wouldn't have been behind. <laughs> um, but I kind of digress slightly. But uh, one of the things I wanted to say was that uh, the, the 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 film critic uh, Scott Weinberg has been mm-hmm. um, tweeting a lot of um, Harry Knowles reviews um, this week, and mm. um, he very much like me, he was kind of saying I'd never really read this guy's stuff, and this is a just dreadfully written, kind of barely literate. 
um, film reviews, but like B just so fucking pervy. Like yeah. there's that incidences of him like saying, you know, there aren't, there's not enough TNA in this slasher movie. And, you know, these uh, kind of uh, women characters aren't in enough peril. I think, you know, that, you know, they deserve to die and all this kind of, oh, it's just like, whoa, you know, like when you kind of find out something about someone, then you retrace the steps and you're like, holy shit, no one yeah. saw this coming sooner. And yeah, it's just, it's just leaves such a horrible taste in the mouth all round because for such a long time, even though I, I knew who he was but never read his stuff, I assumed for some reason that he was kind of well-respected in mm. that kind of field, I guess. And I know that he had such uh, access to, to productions in the sense that I read this week that when Peter Jackson got negative press for when Lord of the Rings was announced in the early days of the kind of that internet kind of, movie scene like it, harry knowles was personally approached to like get kind of like message board nerds on side and as yeah. a result got access to the film making process of lord of the rings i'm like that dude got access holy fuck what yeah and it's it's also been i mean the one the review that that uh most stood out to me I don't know if if um, if Scott Weinberg was the one who tweeted this out, but certainly a lot of people did. Was his review of the first episode of Heroes, where he spends a lot of time talking about the character of Claire, played by Hayden Panettiere, who I think at that time was maybe seventeen. She was very young, um, and like he's talking about the fact, like you know, she regenerates. So does that mean that her hymen heals and she'll always be a virgin? And he's going into this like in just like really disgusting kind of fantasy about the idea of like being able to have sex with a teenager who is always a virgin Mm. and it's just like god how did like this not blow up and the answer to that is i think one is that i think a lot of people would like read the first paragraph of his stuff and be like nope not gonna even bother getting to the to the seventh paragraph where it becomes horrifying it is literally just like this is terribly written and it's the most aesthetically awful website in the world i'm not gonna bother which i think i honestly do think is a reason why a lot of respectable people didn't know that he was like that there was this stuff going on is like they just were like i'm not gonna bother with ain't cool news and then the people who would read that stuff are maybe of the same mentality of harry knowles and wouldn't complain about it Mm. but also uh, we were talking about a little of this beforehand. I think the the internet culture that Knowles kind of came up through and became emblematic of and ultimately of its worst excesses was so male-dominated and so h- homogenous that a lot of people just wouldn't bother to point that stuff out. Like they wouldn't find, and they would be afraid to because he was this guy who, for reasons that are that kind of beggar belief had became like powerful and and so anyone who wanted to speak out against the things he was writing or the things that he was doing would probably be like no i don't want to run the risk of losing work or losing access because Mm. of things i say against this guy um and i think what this last kind of two weeks or so i think is really thrown up is that the boys club of internet movie criticism or whatever is starting to crumble based on the fact that now there are people out there with voices you know that's and a lot of them unfortunately are the victims of of horrible abuse online just from dickheads but they get out there they write about the movies they love cinema and they are willing to talk about it and they're more willing to call this shit out and that is one of the 
like few positives of the, this last week or so is that you can see that there is this vanguard of of the online film criticism world and and you know like men as well who are not creepy bastards um being willing to kind of like back them up and say hey yeah no this shit is not on we need to clean house and make this space genuinely uh but genuinely safe for everyone because like we all love movies we shouldn't want a huge segment of the people who love movies shouldn't feel intimidated or afraid Mm, yeah and in our own special effort to break up the internet boys club i think we've uh got three episodes in a row coming up where we will be having uh kind of female uh film writers and uh, people on uh, in the next three weeks i think should um kind of everything goes to plan uh, that'll happen and that's a conscious effort on our part to try and mix things up a bit because I saw someone make a joke on, on Twitter the other day which I thought was accurate it said a collective noun for men is a podcast yeah which <laughs> is uh, you know it's always bothered us um, yeah. and now we're writing it we're trying to yeah in our own small way like we said last episode like the platform that we have we you know try and do what we can mm-hmm. also this week one of the stories that broke and I think five years ago would have been a huge deal or uh, five or six years ago would have been a huge detail and now is met with people going, oh yeah, I guess that's happening. Was It was announced that the four Avatar sequels have started production with a budget of $1 billion. A mm. Dr. Evil, as they say in the business. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, how do you feel about that? Because I think you and I are both pretty much of, of a piece on Avatar. I think I may like it slightly more than you, but we're not, neither of us are like high on it. Mm. Um, well, and- I think, I think one, $1 billion is being spent on Avatar whilst uh, Puerto Rico is underwater. <laughs> um, and I can't, I can, like, I'm thinking of that being the most kind of uh, staggering misuse of, of resources. Um, um, but also it's like, there's something that, you know, has to be said that, um, taking, and I think, I think I saw someone say this on Twitter, I can't remember quite who, um, so I apologize if it was one of you, um, said something like, uh, the last few times that people have said, oh God, James Cameron's making another movie and that's coming out. That didn't go well because every Mm. time he's made a movie, it's kind of made a billion dollars or whatever. Um, the last kind of three times out. Um, so yeah, he's um, like, I'm sure they'll do well. I'm sure like people in China yeah. will watch them and robots will enjoy them maybe. Um, but like, I could not give a fuck. Like that, I like I saw Avatar at the cinema um, and I really disliked it at the time. I think we probably talked about it back then. Oh no, hang on. We, this wasn't even a thing, was it? That we, 2009 that came out, didn't we, it? I don't think we knew each other. No, wow, that's a that's a pre podcast thing. Yeah. Um, well, I'll dedicate a whole episode to it in the future. Um, <laughs> and I really disliked it. Um, I'm baffled by its success. I don't know anyone that likes it enough to want four more films. Mm. Um, I know a few people who, and I genuinely seek them. I speak to people like when it comes up. Did you like you saw Avatar? Right? Did we? Did Did you go and see it like twice? Did you what? Like what? Who Who is supporting this movie? Um, and I can't figure out anyone. Uh, the best I've got a few people who are like, well, the special effects were good, mm. and that was it. So I, I, I just can't understand who these movies are for, other than possibly kind of like East Asian audiences who who really loved it. Mm. Um, but then I still can't understand why. It's oh uh, yeah, it's always been strange to me because one of my strongest memories of going to see Avatar was 
the day or like a couple of days after going to see it uh, and seeing it in 3D and like more or less enjoying it, I was thinking that was that was pretty fun. It wasn't the best thing I'd ever seen, but it was like it was an interesting novel experience. I remember sitting in a pub with a bunch of people from the showroom uh, talking about it and the general consensus was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know, don't know what all the fuss was about. And this was just as the wave of its kind of cultural ascendance was cresting, the fact that it was making a huge amount of money in a way that that people hadn't expected, like it had opened pretty well and then just everyone kept going to see it all over and over again. And it was absolutely insane. And that's been my my feeling since then is that it's always been, it was a movie that just a lot of people just sort of thought was okay and fine, but then didn't leave a huge cultural footprint in the way that Titanic did. Mm-hmm. Like Titanic, you can point to scenes and lines and characters that have reverberated throughout time. It's why people can joke, still joke now about how there was room on that door for both mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, K- and Rose let Jack just die for no good reason. Um, like people can still make that joke and people will still laugh at it. It's like the most hackneyed thing in the world, but people remember that scene. Mm-hmm. It's just like, what joke would you make about Avatar? Mm-hmm. Like, I honestly can't think of a thing from Avatar that you would make a joke about. It's like, there's, there's nothing really memorable about it well um, uh, we'll put that to the test ed because i seem to remember there was a thing that went around the internet about like maybe a year ago when they were saying that they were getting close to actually making these sequels mm-hmm. which was name a character from avatar right yeah and and on on twitter like so many people couldn't so let's put this to the test ed the lead character who was played by the guy from suicide squad right no no <laughs> the guy his <laughs> different his australian double. yeah sam worthington right yeah what was his character's name his name was Jake Sully. Wow. I thought his name was Jake Tully. But anyway, no, so but... what was he doing? He was paraplegic. Yes. And he, he... Well, they went to a Pandora, the name yes. of the world. Yes. And they were digging for unobtainium. That this yes. much I remember. Um, and when I heard that, I laughed out loud in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Big core fan, were you? It's just yeah, like, what absolutely. a great reference. Yep, yep. <laughs> so then, then I now... Um, I'm at a loss at the stage between the unobtainium and the blue monsters. Mm. What? Why does he have to become a blue monster? It's because they are native to that land and they want to... Sigourney Weaver and her crew are... Who is she? Who does she work for? She works for... For the military, who are also a corporation, maybe mm. it's kind of not entirely clear. There's some melding of the two, yeah. And they have developed these avatars, who are you know these kind of recreations of these creatures that, and they they've done it to kind of explore and learn about their culture. And eventually, I think her idea is that maybe they'll kind of nudge them away from the places where all the drilling is going to happen, so it can all end peacefully. And so, he uh, has. Uh, are they he dead? Has to, to, huh? Are they like dead bodies they inhabit? No, they're like artificial ones they've created. Right. I think. And okay. Jake has to do it because his twin brother had been the one... Is it who... the guy from Suicide Squad? <laughs> it could be, but I believe hmm. it was just Sam Worthington in a dual role as a corpse and not a corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, he 
died, obviously, and mm-hmm. the machines are designed, the avatars are designed to only work for one person's DNA. So it has to be his twin brother who goes to do it, even though he's like this cynical guy who doesn't have any interest in it. Uh, and then mm-hmm. he falls in love with Zoe Zaldana's character, and then mm-hmm. things blow up. And Michelle so- Rodriguez says she didn't sign up for this, even though, like, it's the army. You exactly did sign up for exactly the thing that you're doing. So, and the guy um, with the flat top, Stephen Lang's character. Yes. So he's in the military and he's fighting against the people in the military, Sigourney Weaver's military scientists, because they're becoming too close to the natives and there's a big tree? Yes. Right, and then, okay. So, hang on. Why did the twin brother have to exist? Why didn't they just say, hey, Worthington, you got the job? He doesn't have to. What, he doesn't have to. Have, why did you just say? Just it's you. You're doing it. I think to establish a reason why he would be drawn to the Navi instead of the military. The Navi because, instead of the army. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Right. Okay. Be- because he already had a distrust of them because of his previous experiences, and he's been kind of dragged into this situation reluctantly, and so he would find something more kind of pure in their 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 existence. I guess. Right. And then So I guess what we found out is that we can say what happened in Avatar, but there's not really anything you could point to as like they say I see you a lot and that's their kind of version of I love you. Mm. But there's not really that much in the way of memorable dialogue or things. <laughs> dialogue or characters or story or you know kind of drama or interactions between yeah. people that kind of resonate with humans. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of that, but I suppose if you're like someone who hasn't seen Fern Gully or Dances with Wolves, then there's a lot to enjoy in there. Yeah, and like to get back to what we we're saying about the fact they're producing four of them at a billion dollars, like I'm I'm loath to count out James Cameron because as you say, he basically has never had a flop mm-hmm. except for like his first movies, except for Piranha 2 The Spawning, which, which I even think then- he's moved past now. Yes, I think even then he probably he still probably made money. Like he's never, he's basically never failed, mm. and so it's. I I'm sure those movies will all do well, but it does feel so strange that he's been in this game of chicken with the world for t- like nearly ten years at this point, where he's saying he's working on the next one, and he keeps saying upping the number of movies he's going to make. Mm-hmm. He was working on Avatar two, Avatar two, then he was going to make two at the same time, then three, and now four. And it just feels like everyone's moved past that. But at the same time, like there's an avatar land at Disney World now. So and and that has been very popular and people say that it's actually a genuinely kind of great and immersive experience to go into this recreation of the world of Pandora. So who who do we know? Maybe there's this, you know, this core of secret avatar lovers, you know, e- economically anxious. Um, people who are out there who won't talk about the fact that they like Avatar because everyone judges them about it and says says that they're they're racist or whatever. But mm. um, they will they they'll come out of the woodwork come December or whatever of twenty nineteen or whenever the first one comes out. I'll believe it when I see it. And also, I mean, that is kind of up for grabs now, isn't it? Because of Star Wars being moved to two thousand nineteen. Mm. That that week or even that month is going to be too much for it. So given that Disney has a finger in each of those pies, something's got to give there. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how it happens and if it 
does end up being just like this thing that overwhelms the world again very briefly whilst leaving little remnant or if it will become if it will be like james cameron's final like uh like roll of the dice that doesn't (laughs) doesn't turn out well for him the first time he ever fails he Mm. fails on the biggest stage possible and you kind of have to admire the fact that he does that there's like maybe four or five people in the entirety of the film world who could try anything on that scale and mm. the fact that he's doing it is is remarkable, I guess. Yeah, and Sam Worthington really does need the work because he very briefly flickered as being a Hollywood action hero. But, mm. you know, other than Suicide Squad, I haven't seen him in much recently <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. In similar news, in terms of budgets and things being insanely expensive, and this will lead us on to our main topic, mm-hmm. there was an article in Variety this week about the fact that that TV budgets in an age where there are now four, 500 original series being written, being made, and this is just uh, scripted TV shows being made every year, and there are all of these new outlets that are all trying to come up with their own hit, and they all are throwing money. We talked last week about Netflix going massively into debt. And by the way, I massively undersold how much in debt um, Netflix is. I think I said they were like $700 million in debt and they're $20 billion in debt. So shit, a, a correction from me of the, you know, I was off by many, many multiples there on how much they owe. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they have followed this model where they just invest in, in shows and they throw a huge amount of money out there and everyone else is doing that. Hulu's doing that. Amazon are doing that. And this article broke down how in the last 10 years or so, the budget for a single camera comedy has risen from about a million, a million and a half to about three million to five million per episode. And the budget for a hour long drama has increased to from about 5 million to the average is like 10 12 million with something like game of thrones as the biggest show on television costing about 15 million dollars per episode Mm. Uh, which is like insane it's a crazy how much tv shows cost now especially considering fewer people watch tv shows than ever before i mean lots of people watch lots of tv but the the fact the fact is a lot of these shows do not get the sort of blockbuster ratings that you would expect to justify that expense because mm, i mean i suppose it's splitting the audience down into minute chunks is that like yes and and that there's never really been a wholly accurate way of measuring tv ratings in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of people watching but i mean th- this is news that doesn't surprise me ed when uh hollywood is willing to cede so much to television um and you've got the talent shall we say heading towards television then yeah it's going to get more expensive when you've got a tv show that comes out last year that's got nicole kidman and reese witherspoon in it Mm. um you know suddenly other people are going to be like well okay oh there's good work to be done on television you say uh and the 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 kind of the multiplexes are full of cookie cutter superhero movies um then yeah i'm not surprised it's happening plus as well they're showing what works on television. Like Game of Thrones is an idea. We've talked about this before. That, that shouldn't be as good as it is. Um, mm. And we we talked about it in like, I don't know, like episode season three, I think we did our first, or maybe four, uh, did our first talk about it when, you know, the budget was just start, starting to turn. And, you know, they can do stuff on TV now that they couldn't have done 25 years ago. I think Lost was probably the one that, kind of broke that seal that they could chuck a bunch of money at an episode. They normally only do like the pilot would be really expensive. Then the rest of them would be 
fairly kind of cheap. But now it's like, you know, if people are watching it, you know, why not chuck the money at it? Because they're not paying to go to the cinema and it's just downloading shit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think the the case of Game of Thrones is really funny to think about how much their budget has gone up because this seems crazy now considering how expansive and huge the show has become. But in the first season, they couldn't afford horses. Mm-hmm. Like they would have a very small number of horses that they would use for scenes. And then a lot of the time it'd just be characters walking to places that they needed to go. This was particularly notable anytime like the Night's Watch went north of the wall where... Mm-hmm. They're clearly meant to be going on horses because they're travelling a huge distance in snowy conditions that where they're clearly going to freeze to death if they weren't on horses, but they literally couldn't afford them. Mm-hmm. And then now you look at the most recent season and there's horses galore. It's horses yeah. everywhere. But that's like just as a basic indication of, yeah, we have a lot more money to throw around at this point and this show has become has gone from a slightly a somewhat expensive but still very low rent by like fantasy movie standards to a show that is being produced simultaneously on four continents uh and it has it's you know it's it, there's a reason why it's the, the the most expensive and why it can do all that because it's the most talked about show in the world but it really does show how the drive to make shows look and feel as good and big as possible to supplant cinema in a lot of people's lives has really kind of taken up when something like like the tick which is a good a good funny show but like it's a funny action comedy show that costs a lot of money per episode because they have like lots of effect shots and they try and make it look as cinematic as possible it's costing like three four million dollars an episode and it's a very very niche show on amazon which is itself not the biggest of streaming platforms at the moment hasn't really had a big breakout hit you do see that something has shifted seismically in the industry yeah and that, yeah, it's, I don't know whether because there's so many options and you can just ditch something and start again, whether the model is a bit more sustainable than it is for film. You don't mm. have as many losses to recoup. Like I noticed yeah. the, um, the Mist was cancelled this week. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Stephen King uh, adaptation, which is kind of, feels a bit crazy given that Stephen King's properties are so hot right now when you think about it, but then also... Uh, the what's it called the dark tower not, and not gerald's so game which just yep. uh started on netflix well started yep. it's, a, it's a single movie but that's one that everyone is very very excited about at the moment yeah so it kind of continues you know what we've had of like the last 40 years of uh of stephen king adaptations some of them are very good some of them are very bad mm, yeah certainly uh something for maybe talking about in a future episode yeah nice. hint hint Yes. And and one of the shows that was talked about in this article, and I think was kind of the catalyst for it, because it had just debuted and it had been, it was a huge outlay of money for the studio, was Star Trek Discovery, the latest incarnation of the Star Trek franchise, although really the first because it's a prequel. Well, I mm. guess chronologically it's the second because it comes between Enterprise and the original series, um, which is a show that costs about $10 million per episode and has gone straight to CBS's streaming service. Um, although it airs on Netflix elsewhere in the world, but it is part of CBS trying to make a push into original content along with the Good Wife spin-off series, The Good Fight, to try and broaden the appeal of their shows. Like They have this great swathe of 
of archive shows of these great classics of television that they want people to kind of look at on their streaming service and not everyone else. And they're trying, they're doing essentially the same thing that Netflix and Hulu have done where they say, okay, now here's our original stuff. Play, pay attention. And Star Trek discovery is, is the one that they clearly, the horse they clearly seem to be backing in that regard. Mm. Do you think that, I mean, this is something that um, is kind of been talked about quite a lot recently is that now with so many streaming services, in five years' time, it's conceivable that every single person will have like eighteen different subscriptions, and mm. it would be more expensive than playing for like premium cable back in the day. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has that feel to it. Like, I pay for three or four at the moment, and they're things like Filmstruck, which isn't that expensive because it's this like niche movie service or movie as well as another one, but. At the moment, at least, like you can watch a lot of things on Hulu, but Hulu recently in the last year or so have lost the rights to a lot of Comedy Central shows. Like Comedy Central used to be able to watch The Daily Show the day after it aired. Mm-hmm. They would have seasons of of some of their bigger shows or even like they're, they're pretty much their whole back catalogue in there, stuff like Another Period, which was never a huge hit, but was a show that you could you could watch on there. And they've all been removed and it's clear that they're trying to force people to go and watch it on their own app and to kind of like pay for it either as a subscription or through their cable. And you do get the sense that we are moving in the same way that Netflix are moving away from having like a big archive of older movies as because all of the studios are like, Hey, all of these movies we can put in our own stream service or we can sell to someone else and they'll be more valuable. Whereas before like streaming, streaming rights for old movies was something studios didn't think of. Mm. you do get a sense that all of these networks are now looking at what Netflix and Hulu has done and thought, mm, we should try and get in on this and everything is going to splinter a lot more uh, than what it has been in like the recent past. Mm. It's a shame. I mean, I've, I've got like three, I think, subscriptions, but like there's just more and more launching and then when they start, you know, all these kind of old properties are going to be siphoned off. And I mean, in, mm. in, in 20 years, it's not really going to matter too much. As we said last week, where each streaming service will have enough of their own content to make it worth it. But it's the older stuff where, you know, for instance, a film that might be owned by one company in one territory is owned by a different one in another territory. So it, obviously it doesn't appear on um, on your streaming service wherever you are around the world and like I had had this with music like when Kendrick Lamar's new album came out this just shows how hip and down with the kids I am um, I added it to Apple Music whilst I was travelling but in America like only half of those tracks appeared and then when I got home mm. they're all there and it's just like well okay that's a real pain in the ass to everyone and like in 20 years it's not going to be a problem because all you know anything that's covered by those rights agreements will be kind of like of so little financial value um that they'll be stuck on some archive somewhere but it's i like that it's taken these streaming services to shake our way out of distribute those old-fashioned distribution models um but it's yeah it sucks i'm gonna have to have like 10 different subscriptions to things like disney have just pulled all their stuff off well they, they it's like when they're deal with netflix um expires i think at the end of 2017 everything's going from netflix and that's not so much of a problem in the uk because a lot of it's already gone but like in the us that's they've got all the marvel movies they've got all the pixar movies all the Mm. um disney walt disney animated studio movies i think aladdin 2 return to jafar is on there which is absolutely valuable all the live action stuff 
So, um, like, that's going to be a, a bit... But then why would they keep it on there? They can just run their own. They can, you know, charge what they want. Yeah, and they're, they're one of the biggest companies in the world. They have all the rights to these things. Mm. You know, why should they go through an intermediary? And it makes sense. It's annoying for everyone. Um, and I think from a, pos- a position as someone who enjoys... Uh, consuming art and like wants to have the availability these things available you know as easily as possible it is frustrating that we are having to live through this intermediary phase where ev- the models are all crumbling and everyone's trying to figure out what works or not and, and in some ways it's like it's analogous to the the decline in the idea of like television as a mass medium in the, you know, shows have to get 20 million viewers or they're cancelled mm-hmm. because when that model started to crumble, networks still operated under thinking that that was true. So a lot of shows that probably could have lived like a good life with a low rating um, would get kind of just canned. Uh, and then a lot of and then like a few years later you would see something like a parks and rec which would be able to run for like seven seasons on ratings that five years earlier would have doomed it to complete death yeah Uh, it didn't have to get cheers numbers did it yeah and so you you can look at this this kind of graveyard of shows that all had like great promise and just happened to be produced like five years too early um and like i'm sure we'll get to the you know, in five years' time, ten years' time, we'll get through this period and everyone will have figured out something. Or all of these studios will have completely collapsed and there will be no culture anymore. Um, it's, it does sometimes feel as if those are the only two options. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we'll be able to look back on this and say, okay, now we can sift through the wreckage and try and understand what happened. Mm. But where can I watch the US office? <laughs> That'll be it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which, according to Netflix over here, is one of the top choices in teen TV for BFFs, mm. um, which was weird because I was like just scrolling through it and they come up with those uh, ones generated by algorithms and it was super strange. The other one, which I thought was hilarious, was uh, movies based on books, including Young Frankenstein, <laughs> which in the most basic sense, yes, that mm-hmm. is based on a book, but not very closely, I would argue. Yeah, um, it does deviate a little from the source material. Um, but back to um, Star Trek Discovery, um, mm. you and I both watched the first two episodes, which aired uh, on CBS All Access over here and on Netflix in the UK. I'm someone who, and, you know, I talked about this when uh, me and uh, John Hunter did the Star Trek episode last year. I was uh, I used to watch Star Trek a lot growing up as a kid because it was something that aired on the BBC. They used to have two episodes of The Simpsons and then a sci-fi show. And because there were three different star trek uh, iterations all running kind of like almost concurrently or just like one finished and then another one started then another one started um they just had like all of these episodes that they would just play and i would just watch them because i love sci-fi and so i watched a lot of star trek and it was something that i kind of like grew up with you uh were always more skeptical i think it's fair Mm. to say uh, you yeah. did not have any interest in star trek but we both um at different times uh, about a month apart went to the museum of pop culture in seattle this year this summer and uh went to the star trek exhibition there which like for me was catnip and and you said you know was something that really uh kind of impressed you and uh it, it and made you kind of reconsider the show in a in a new light and made you excited to see star trek discovery yeah. so um, I guess the first question is, um, like, 
where where are you on your own personal Star Trek? Um, well, I always hated Star Trek uh, yeah. when I was younger. Um, so probably a bit before the time you're describing mm-hmm. when they were airing um, Next Generation for the first time. It did used to be on like BBC Two at about six o'clock every day. So yeah. around the time that my, me and my family were sitting down to have our tea and my brother and my dad loved Star Trek. They really, really loved it. And I just thought, this is really fucking stupid. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'd grown up watching Star Wars, and to yeah. me, that just seemed really cool and really mm-hmm. throwaway and really like, um, you know, oh, there's a dude with a weird alien face shape like a kettle. He's just walked by, but no one's going to stop and mention it. In Star Trek, they seem to talk to this guy. He had his own language and culture, which they went into in great detail. Um, and, like, it just completely lost me. Um, there just seemed to be too much science and not enough fiction, mm-hmm. uh, which was always my issue with it. So I always just kind of dismissed it. Um, I think the early, the original series I'd seen some of, and I thought it had like some cool camp value. Um, didn't really see much of. Um, I don't know the, the differences between. Who remind me who the captains are in Deep Space Nine and Voyager? Uh, Benjamin Sisko is the captain in Deep Space Nine and Janeway is the captain in Voyager. Yeah, so I saw some of Voyager. I didn't really see any of Deep Space Nine and I saw a little bit of Enterprise and none of them managed to kind of change my mind about Star Trek. That said, I very much enjoyed the J.J. Abrams reboot uh, Mm -hmm. of Star Trek and I thought, oh, actually, like, you know, this isn't too bad. Um, I could get into this. I thought that was a very good way to to reignite that thing. I like kind of thought I'm still, I wouldn't consider myself a huge fan of Star Trek, but I'd like to see where this is going. Then Star Trek Into Darkness happened. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, that was a lot of goodwill wasted. Um, <laughs> and then I saw Beyond um, earlier this year and within half an hour, I couldn't remember what happened. So it mm. become instantly disposable again. But then, like you say, I went to the uh, exhibition at the Umpop in Seattle and it was uh, Star Trek at 50, I think that was the exhibition. Like, it was or 50 or 40, 50 sounds right. 50. Um, yeah, so, uh, and, you know, I kind of, I was like, well, we'll get out of the way first. It's the first room you come to when you when you get there. I thought, I'll just get out of the way because I've got the least interest in it. Um, I want to go down and see, go downstairs and see that Jawa costume. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. um, and I walked around and I thought, wow, I really have kind of underestimated Star Trek um like I kind of always knew it was kind of like a progressive show I guess um for its time but I didn't really realize how deliberate that was I always underestimated uh the differences between my beloved Star Wars and Star Trek that one is very much a kind of a space opera with like kind of lost western elements and and kind of things like that whereas Star Trek is basically space con- communism and they've solved <laughs> all the problems and everything is kind of chill uh, and we're, we're just going to explore, man. It's going to be awesome. And I kind of just never really thought of that as a... I just thought it was a kind of, you know, monster of the week type thing um, with silly languages. So I came out with a newfound respect for it. Then also where the the kind of reaction to the uh, diversity of the new cast of Star, Star Trek Discovery was causing such ripples uh, in certain online communities, um, always exclusively populated by Bellends, um <laughs> that I thought, you know what? I'm on the side of Star Trek Discovery here and I will bloody well watch it. Um and I'll try my hardest to enjoy it just to spite those dicks. So that's but that's where my journey's taking me to, Ed. Okay. And 
in terms of some just some quick background on Star Trek Discovery, this, as I said uh, earlier, it's a it takes place before the original series, and in the initial car- uh, incarnation, it was created by Brian Fuller, who uh, is a, a writer. He created Hannibal, probably one of the best shows of the last ten years. He also created Pushing Daisies, Wonderfalls, um, Dead Like Me. Uh, more recently, American Gods, this guy who's got a very expansive vision of what television can be and who also started his career writing for some of the, the 90s Star Trek shows he wrote for DS9 and for and for Voyager. And so he came on board and he had this idea. He said, OK, what we're going to do is we're going to do it like a cable show. It's going to be 10 episodes long and each one is going to have an entirely different cast. It's going to be an anthology show. First season going to take place in this kind of prequel setting. And then the next one will we'll jump forward like 30 years and see what's happening there. 40 years, whatever. And, and uh, CBS were like, oh, slow down. <laughs> just focus on trying to do a prequel thing and after a little while um they had a falling out and he left the show after making a lot of the early creative decisions um and so now it's kind of more being driven by alex kurtzman who was one of the guys who wrote the abrams movies and i believe more most recently directed the mummy with tom cruise i think it was him Mm -hmm. or maybe it was roberta walkie they're both terrible but um they're not they're not they're not good writers or directors so that obviously and, and also um also being written by Akiva Goldsman who bafflingly is an Oscar winner despite writing some of the worst movies of all time mm. um and a winter's tale which is one of the best movies of all time um if you like really terrible movies with Russell Crowe doing a ridiculous accent and Will Smith playing the devil for no good reason um but uh so that that the show has had a contentious birth it has to be said in terms of the the fact there was a lot of um drama going on behind the scenes and like you say there was there were people reacting very badly to essentially star trek being star trek like Mm -hmm. it's a show that always had like the first iteration of it had a a racially diverse cast the next generation had a fairly diverse cast uh uh, uh deep space nine you know you had a black captain which was a big a big deal for the show uh jane uh, jane way obviously a, a female captain in voyager so it it seemed like a weird thing to complain about and other people have said you know like what's with this fucking sjw shit in star trek and you're like do you watch the fucking show mm. it's like they're constantly talking about issues of like um prejudice and trying to forge a better world like this is not new to star trek um mm. so it's just baffling response but um so yeah so it, it comes in kind of uh weighed down with the expectations of being the first new trek show in 12 years since enterprise ended and of being you know a show that whose production has been watched kind of fearfully by a lot of people um and uh so like i, I watched the first two episodes as did you and um i thought it was all right yeah, um, I mean that's a that's kind of like a big anticlimax. Uh, yeah. So yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> well, no, um, I also thought it was all right, and I would definitely like to see more episodes of this television show. Yes. Um, but I did find the first two episodes were very very leaden, mm-hmm. with lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of plot and exposition. And yes. I desperately just wanted to get to know these characters. And I um, watched the first episodes on Monday when they came out. 
and also rewatched the first scene um, before this show because the first scene bothered me like a lot um, because I watched this, this scene and the scene is uh, of two characters uh, that we've never met before um, and like you say, it's the first Star Trek show in 12 years and had that been written by someone different or if it had taken a different approach, we would have spent this entire scene, which is like a five-minute scene, um, with these two important characters acting as characters rather than um, kind of ciphers for dialogue. Um, and yeah. I actually uh, would have liked to... There were like two characters who were out on a mission which um, seemed to have no consequence to the main plot, um, but it was there to establish them as people and them as characters um, and, you know, you should do that with how they act with each other, not what they kind of say specifically, but like, you know, uh, how they solve a problem or, you know, how they relate to each other or how they get out of things. And what we actually got was dialogue such as this. The ambient radiation from a nearby meteor drilling accident dried out their water table. If we can get in and out without contact, we can steer clear of General Order 1. Mm-hmm. So okay, that whole point that I've tried to make there um, is like that that scene wasn't actually important to the the two episodes that we've seen, right? Yeah, that was a perfect perfect opportunity to have two people try and solve this problem without having to literally explain what was going on when we were watching it because they they walk they're like, oh, we're lost, we're on a desert planet. There's no water on this desert planet. See those egg sacs up there. There's uh, aliens in those. The aliens are here for a while. There's been a nearby meteor accident, <laughs> and etc. 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 And things like, how do I just how do I open this well? And she says, turn your gun to point seven second field burst at level setting thirteen point five. Yeah, and it also has like in terms like when they're talking about themselves very briefly and the two characters. Uh, it's uh, Michael Burnham. Played mm-hmm. by uh, Sonequa Martin Green, girl Michael. And, yes, a girl called Michael, which I think is is kind of a cool detail. I don't know. I think the character was always imagined as being female, um, and it wasn't like oh, we just like cast a dude. In it. it wasn't a Ripley situation. Mm. Um, I thought it was I just like a that. convoluted Arrested Development reference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It, the uh, the other thing that it reminded me of. Have you ever seen that video? which is of the Lost Boys, and it's every line of dialogue in the Lost Boys is Michael. <laughs> no, no. And someone, someone has just taken every time someone says, Michael, Michael, <laughs> Michael, Michael, in, and it's literally one minutes and 38 seconds long because everyone in the Lost Boys is constantly saying the word Michael. Mm. And the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery reminded me of that because there are points where people are just shouting Michael over and over again. Yeah, and Philippa Giorgio and played by Michelle Yeoh, and what you essentially have is them establishing, instead of, like you were saying, talking about their character and who they are, it's more just establishing what they do. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, oh, she's the captain. And then she says, you know, what would you do if you were trapped on this planet for like 84 years? And she says, well, as an ethnologist, I would. And it's just like, <laughs> boy, that's that's some naturalistic dialogue, Akiva Goldsman. Thank you. Mm. Thank you for cramming in the fact that she's an ethnologist into this. And then... It's just yeah, it is. It is this thing where you're like, mm, like visually, it's like great. It's like mm. it looks fantastic, and you can get a real sense of the scale of it. And there is a nice thing at the end where you know they can't communicate with the ship, and they're just walking uh, 
around and and michael is wondering you know what's going on and then they get back and they find their own footsteps and she's like you put us you just took us around in a circle and she says not quite and then you realize that they have been walking into the shape of the star the starfleet symbol and the ship knows where to find them and that's nice that's Mm -hmm. kind of a nice sense of like oh the captain is very kind of uh uh as someone who has a great deal of ingenuity and knows like uh, how to kind of solve work uh, laterally around problems and things like that. Uh, whereas, uh, whereas Michael is perhaps more logical. And then later on, you find out she was raised by Vulcans and that kind of factors into it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of the, the dialogue is not really about exploring character it is very much about table setting and being like, okay, this is who this person is. This is what they do. This is their job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it, it does kind of, it is frustrating because they set up these conflicts which p- promise to be very exciting further down the road and they just kind of like drop them in in, in the most kind of leaden way possible. Mm, and there's a lot of characters. Yes. And also there's a lot of characters who we know are in it, but we haven't met yet. Um, so like Jason yeah. Isaacs hasn't appeared yet. Yeah, um, and he's a fairly important character. I think he's going to replace the guy who self-destructs his own ship. I think in episode two, mm-hmm. um, uh, the character played by Rain Wilson um, hasn't appeared yet. Um, yeah. was Anthony Rapp's character in it? No, in Anthony my- Rapp, the the original Rent Boy. Yeah. Uh, no, he's a uh, <laughs> people who don't know Anthony Rapp was in the original cast of Rent. Um, uh, yes, he is. Uh, he's not in it yet. Um, yeah, and that, that was the weird thing, because at the end of the two episodes, uh, spoilers, um, Michelle Yeoh's character dies. Yeah. Uh, Got to keep the, the ship- salary budget down. Yes. Uh, and the ship that they were on, the Zenshou, uh I apologise for my pronunciation, is kind of destroyed, and Michael is uh, convicted of, of insubordination and sentenced to the star trek discovery where jason isaacs presumably is going to be like the captain or whatever mm-hmm. and, and so what you've essentially been see you you've been given is just like a ton of backstory for this character the character of michael which feels like something that you could have avoided and started on the first episode of her as a prisoner and like revealed these inf- this information at a later date mm. um it does feel as if you sat through this prequel show began with an hour and a half of prequel to itself mm. yeah it it was it was uh, and being introduced to characters who apart from um saru played by doug jones who's great mm-hmm. uh, i really enjoyed doug jones um there's not really that many characters that make it out of the two hours who are you feel are going to have like any great impact on the show going forward Mm. But I mean, even he was like introduced in a really clumsy way where he says something like, oh, I think something's up. And then someone says, oh, you're a blurpian or whatever, like kind of <laughs> alien he is. You always think something's up. It's just like, oh, I, I get it. He's he's that guy. Um, but like I, I, it was a very it was very dynamic. It was very fun to watch. Uh, they've obviously thrown a lot of money at it. And the, mm. the kind of action stuff is great. Um, I did feel like some of the stuff on the bridge of their ship was like edited in such a way that i had very kind of i found it very hard to figure out is they sitting in a chair which which way are they looking yeah mm. what's happening who's that where are they stood i've got no idea where because you're, you're kind of used to how those the bridges kind of set out i guess um i, I don't know whether they, they were cutting around something or what but i found it quite kind of jarring and i kind of yeah uh kind of struggled to know what was going on there but did you know about this klingon business 
Um, so a couple of friends of mine said that like the Klingons from Star Wars are still owned by someone else, and these Klingons are different Klingons, and they are technically not like not original Klingons. And right. there's I don't know like and like some fans are like oh they're not as good as the original Klingons. I don't know the fucking difference. They look like Klingons. Yeah, I mean the the Klingons from the original series were just people in a very light amount of makeup, mm-hmm. and then in the later series they have like more pronounced forehead ridges and they, they, they look more distinctly alien. Uh, and there is one episode of DS nine, which is re- a really, really funny kind of lighthearted one where they go back in time to um, the, the era of the original series of the show and the characters are edited into an old episode <laughs> and they're walking around and they see these old Klingons and they're there with Worf, the character who is like a Klingon. And they're like, what happened? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, we don't talk about it. And it's kind of this funny thing to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, at some point the makeup became more elaborate for this entire species. Mm. And that's why he looks wildly different to these people. But yeah, they, they looked more orc like to me, mm-hmm. um, which I think is like kind of is, is a fine choice because there's post Lord of the Rings. That is a, it's an, it's an aesthetic that people can relate to. And then you see, okay, warlike race of people who are going to be, antagonists fine i can get behind that um the most interesting thing for the klingon for me is that the character of tukuvma uh mm. the kind of um villain of the first two episodes who dies at the end of it uh tukuvma the unforgettable as he's known um which is very funny to me mm-hmm. because i get the feeling <laughs> that i won't be able to remember his name by the end of the third episode like they, they've talked a lot about the idea that his character is a relation is a um uh, a reaction to Donald Trump because like he starts the episode giving what is essentially a very nativist speech mm-hmm. about a civilizational conflict and war. Um, maybe he's more of a Steve Bannon type, you know, except with better facial kind of skin. Mm. Um, and I, there was like some, there was a line like where they talk about like remain Klingon, which very much feels like the Klingon equivalent of America first. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's kind of interesting from a, idea of like you know star trek is this thing that's always reflected the real world to an extent and always had an air of progressivism to it but it also kind of feeling like again something that you could have led up to you didn't need to kind of front load the first two episodes with all of this stuff which ends up feeling like backstory because mm. it like i mean this is ultimately the problem i have had with it i enjoyed it and i wanted to commit to it further because i know that a lot of these kinks will smooth out but when you've got a show and a universe that's obsessed with like minutiae and detail mm. twinned with way too much plot for an hour of television um you know that's a recipe for trouble and i think I mean, most of the people I'd, I've spoken to have seen it, have actually enjoyed it, but I think you could maybe lose some kind of casual viewers um, because yeah. there were there were times where I was like, just this is like four episodes worth of plot squeezed into two episodes, and you know, there's, there's a lot happening here, and so much of it subtitled as well. Yeah, and yeah. there's a lot of characters, and I'm not sure what's going on. I'm not sure who's who, and two characters I thought were really important are now dead, and the ship's blown up. Oh, and another character's dead. Uh, and yeah, so it's like, like you say, it feels like a prequel to itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an admiral called Brett Anderson who looks like he's got animal nitrate in mind. Um, <laughs> he's called Brett Anderson. Is that true? Yeah, the guy, the guy who, uh, yeah, the guy who 
blows up as a hologram. Uh, he says like, "Hi, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm Admiral Brett Anderson," which is just so such a weird thing. Um, I did like the fact that his arc could be traced as mansplains in episode one, dies in episode two. Yeah, uh, no um, point does he wear an open-necked paisley shirt and tap a tambourine provocatively against his hip. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the in terms of like the look of the show, like we say, it's a very expansive show. It looks really great. My main stylistic choice of it uh, for me, and people always complain about like the Abrams movie having too much lens flare, and it never mm. bothered me too much. But it was very much a case of like it's a trick that he used a lot, and it lost its power. Mm-hmm. Um, the sheer number of Dutch angles yeah. in these two episodes was nuts. Like it really did look like of the ten million dollars they really could have invested some of it in a spirit level. Yeah. And they come on most all... tripods. Or or even a director of photography wasn't hammered. Yeah, and it, it did like it obviously every time you see a sci fi show with people in heavy makeup with constant Dutch angles, it does bring up Battlefield Earth memories. Because that is a that is a movie that is uh, unfamiliar with a level frame. But mm. it is like it's a stylistic choice where the whole point of a Dutch angle is to kind of present the world askew or to like provide emphasis in a given moment. And when your entire episode is like 90% Dutch angles, they lose all kind of influence and it just becomes disorientating, mm. especially when you have like hand to hand combat. That's not especially gracefully um, edited together. Mm. Um, that was kind of the point, like the space battles looked great, but whenever it had to be people fighting in a room, it was just kind of like, yeah, this could have used a few more days of, of choreography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like the Dutch angle thing is something I didn't really notice, but I think that maybe, like, I kind of, I, I did notice that it was happening, but maybe that mm-hmm. uh, added to the fact that, like, with the editing choices, that made it even more confusing because it wasn't on the level. Yeah, hopefully that will i think the first episode out you know they're trying things out you would hope that it would settle down a little bit i didn't notice too many dutch angles in the trailer for the forthcoming season that um was added to the end of the second episode on cbs all access certainly which Mm. like showed a bunch of um stuff essentially laying out okay this is where michael's journey goes next she goes onto this new ship she's essentially trying to redeem herself in the eyes of starfleet and all these characters are going to show up and um like to me, it looks it looks great, but it also makes me think you you could have. I'm pretty sure you could have started with episode three, and like it could have been, it could have been exciting. And, and um, as kind of extra research for this, I decided out of interest to see what the first episode of the original Star Trek series was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it basically starts with Captain Kirk giving voiceover, saying. I went down to a planet with bones and Spock remained on the ship and there's no other context. It's literally just like, this is the show you're going to have to try and pick up. And the reason for that is like that episode, the first episode they aired was the sixth episode produced and they put it forward because it had a monster and a lot of action in. Right. Um, And it just kind of made me think maybe more shows should do that because it just, there are a lot of shows where I think you could probably dip in. I mean, that's how all television worked for for decades was like the idea that someone could just jump in and kind of figure it out. And this one, in trying to explain so much thing, weirdly ends up feeling alienating. Mm. I was speaking to some people who are like big Trek fans the other day, and they were like, well, if you want to watch, like, um, what's it called, uh, Next Generation, you start with this episode, then skip forward to the end of season two, mm-hmm. and then move on. I was like, there's so much disposable stuff here. What? <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure that the completists would have watched it all, but, like, is it really that unnecessary that I see it? 
I mean, that's, yeah, that's my memory of it is that the first season, there's a, someone um, described it as a very sweaty season of television because it literally was everyone was trying to revive this show that had been off the air for 21 years Mm. uh, or or 19 years or whatever it was. And everyone just had no idea if anything was going to work. And Patrick Stewart like lived out of his trailer because he was sure the show was going to get cancelled and he would just go straight back to doing theatre and he wouldn't have to like lay down roots in LA or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that does end a certain, uh, that does lend a certain frisson to it as you, if you are thinking, okay, these are these people being thrust into this situation that they don't quite understand. And that adds a certain tension to their characters. But in terms of like writing and plots, it really is like one, it only once Gene Roddenberry left the show, did it really kind of pick up because um, he was a man of great vision, but terrible ideas, <laughs> it seems. Um, not, not uh, you know, he's not dissimilar to George Lucas in that regard. Like someone who kind of laid the groundwork for this fantastic work of science fiction, but was kind of hampered by his own kind of limitations as a writer. Mm, yeah, yeah, that happened to you. So anything else that you kind of like kind of really kind of uh, stood out for you from from Star Trek Discovery from these two episodes. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, Sonequa Martin Green, who plays Michael Burnham, um, yeah. like I was very compelled by her performance, and I did think at the start, I was like, oh man, she's a bit rigid. And then you get the mm. flashback, is like, oh, she was raised by a Vulcan, and I was like, well, she actually kind of pays that, like you know, the other performance is actually spot on for someone who has that backstory. I wish. Perhaps there was a better way of telling us that other than just showing us a flashback mm. because everyone knows the flashbacks are the uh, the kind of the lazy writer's tool. Um, I think yeah. that, I think I think that that is my overall feeling of it. The writing is slightly letting Star Trek Discovery down. There's a um, novelist and writer I follow on Twitter called Matt Colville, um, and he said this show would be amazing if they got a writer on it. <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt about it. I was like, this is yeah. good and I'm enjoying it. But I, like, I think TV's moved on a bit. And, mm. you know, there's there's a lot of good sci-fi stuff out there that people are like seem to be digging. And, like, we're adults. They can write for us, you know? Um, yeah. And people will get it. And I just I just wish it would have been more. Uh, but like, I think I really, really hope to come and do an episode about Star Trek Discovery when it's finished, and we can talk mm. about how, you know, how wrong we were at the start, and how, uh, you know, we got to know and love these characters, and you know, the writing kind of picked up, and and we went on a on a mystical voyage through space and time with these people. Um, but currently, I'm kind of uh, skeptical, um, mm. but not, you know, I'm still hopeful. Yeah, I think for me. The what the scene that really made me think, okay, this show could be great, was the scene where in the second episode where Michael is stuck in the brig mm-hmm. and the the ship has been attacked and she's trapped in the brig and she knows that she's gonna die unless she can convince the computer to let her out and like override its security protocols. And the only way that she can do that is by making essentially an ethical and moral argument for why she should be let out. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like a rich, it's like uh, Sonequa Martin Jones, uh, Martin Green's performance is great. Like she, she really kind of commits this idea of someone who's trying to work through this logic puzzle to save her own life in a very little period of time, but who is brilliant enough to do it. But like the actual writing is is really solid in that scene, in the in the kind of the A to B to C of okay, you won't let me out for this reason, but 
X, Y, and Z, you know, like, oh, um, if you open the, if you open the field ever so slightly, I'll be thrown out at high speed and then you can open the door and I'll survive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, and that to me was like, okay, this feels like a really good mix of the two sides of Star Trek, where it's a mixture of swashbuckling and kind of cerebral sci-fi logic stuff, like always, um, embodied by like the Kirk Spock dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the best shows do have a nice mixture between the two where some episodes are more of one than the other. Uh, and I would really like to see the show explore the dynamic between those two halves of a character like Michael, who is has this background in kind of logic and emotion uh, and living this kind of like cerebral emotionless night life, but who is also kind of a daredevil and someone who's like willing to throw herself into really dangerous situations. Uh mm. And I would like to see that. And also, I'm just, I, I am excited about a Star Trek that seems so unabashedly hopeful and optimistic because that's always what the show has done really, really well. And one of the problems with like Enterprise was it was the first one that came up, like, came out around about 9 11 and never really kind of figured out how to handle offer, offering a optimistic vision in a world that felt like just so hopeless and i think now we're removed from that and we're perhaps willing to kind of hope again and people are are excited about that idea Mm -hmm. Uh, and they've seen so much like huge social change in the last decade or so that a show like this which kind of makes an argument for the future existence of humanity feels like something that could be like really useful at this point um and i just hope that it's good enough to live up to what it could do Hmm. Where do you think that the Star Trek Discovery stands in a world that where we've had something like Battlestar Galactica in the interim between Star Trek shows? I think it could uh, exist as a nice counterweight to it, mm-hmm. uh, as something that is less interested in exploring the political and social ramifications of post 9-11 America, which was the thing that drove Battlestar Galactica and made it so brilliant and more in making an argument for the future mm. uh, and, and why the future is something to strive for right. rather than being just dragged down by how awful the present is, which I think is kind of was the main thing. I mean, I love Battlestar Galactica like, so much, but that was its main argument was that, hey, the world is terrible right now. And it's also terrible in space. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was that was kind of it for a few series, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But Great yeah. show though. I, I I always keep meaning to. That's one of those shows I just I keep meaning to rewatch because even though like Lost, even though at various points it let me down, uh, it was still like a fucking blast to watch. Mm. I still never finished it. I watched the. Uh, um, the first season and the the movie that starts it all, mm. um, but I never actually went past that. I think I think maybe someone told me, oh, you know, the wheels come off in a bit, and I was just like, oh, well, I don't hang around for that. I just, just I'll quit on top. You're you're good through at least halfway through season three. Okay. okay. The the first six or seven episodes, I think, of season three has this like really bold uh, thing where the humans end up being uh they find like a planet and they stay there and then the Cylons show up and become an occupying force Mm -hmm. and it's essentially forcing the audience who are predominantly western and american 
to identify with people being occupied by a brutal and technologically more advanced uh, army and essentially being like, hey, this is what the Iraqis feel like. Maybe you should consider the the way in which you comport yourself in the world, which at the time was like, oh, wow, this is like a really bold analogy. And in hindsight also makes you think, yeah, I can't understand how anyone got away with that. Mm. Um, up until that point, it's great. And then the last season and a half is like, it, it kind of loses its footing in its kind of broader mythology. But I think it's, there's still some good stuff in there. Mm, okay. But two and three, really solid. Right. All right, with you. Okay, so we end the show as we end every week with SRS Recommends, where we point out a bit of pop culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, our listeners, may enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for us this week? Going to keep it very simple. Very, very simple this week with the light of what we've been talked about um, in terms of Star Trek. I'm just going to say Galaxy Quest um, oh, because yeah. that is, I mean, I like Galaxy Quest. I love Galaxy Quest more than I will ever like a Star Trek show. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. But n- now having been to the exhibition in Seattle and understanding a bit more, I can kind of appreciate more of the why people love those kind of shows element that is so affectionately parodied in mm. Galaxy Quest. Whereas before I always thought of it as a bit more kind of scabrous and, and kind of a scathing of uh, fandom, I can now actually see it's 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 way more affectionate than I thought it was and less cynical. But we've talked about it before, so I won't go on about it too much. But it's a fucking great movie, and even though Tim Allen is kind of an asshole uh, <laughs> in real life, he's so perfect for that role. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, the Sam Rockwell character, uh, the the perennial red shirt, um, as it were, is yeah great in it. And there's just so much to love in that film. Um, and I won't bore you with the details. Just watch it. It's, you know, you probably already have. So in which case, I'll shut up. What have you got, Ed? I got, I'll just add to that. Um, the best, one of the, the best and most misguided double bills I ever went to see was a double bill of Galaxy Quest and Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it was misguided was they did it in that order. Right. <laughs> and it's just like, it's very hard to take Wrath of Khan serious after you've watched Galaxy Quest. Because... <laughs> everything about it suddenly seems like really really silly even though it's like a really really good movie um and also in terms of like red shirts i talked about that first episode of of star trek where they they uh the funny thing about it is like it starts with uh captain kirk saying like bones and i went down to the planet and there's another guy there who doesn't even get a name (laughs) and i was like that is really setting out your stall early like this guy doesn't even get even a brief mention so we can pretty much guarantee that he's not going to make it past the first ad break um i'm going to recommend something that has nothing to do with star trek except actually no it does uh there is one tangential connection it's a documentary called obit which is a documentary about the obituary section at the new york times it came out last year i believe Mm -hmm. and it is one of those documentaries that is super focused and niche and a large part of it is like oh, look at these kind of strange people that are drawn to this very specific task, which is the, uh, the 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 task of trying to sum up someone's life after they pass away. And there are kind of bits of that where you're like, oh, you know, this guy who runs the, the, the quote-unquote the morgue, which is the kind of place where they keep all these news clippings and articles about people so they can use as research, is seems really disorganized for a guy who's in charge of millions upon millions of pieces of paper that are, are vital to being able to write these things but um it's also at times very moving because these these writers have had a chance to sit and ponder 
what writing an obituary is about. And there's a wonderful bit where uh, one of the writers is talking about the, the the fact that obituaries are about marking the point at which a person becomes history. And it's about providing a snapshot of what people think about that person at the exact moment they die and the way in which society, how the New York Times often gets criticised for writing obituaries about like white dudes, old white dudes, and and uh, the right the obituary writer makes the argument that well that's because the people who are dying were prominent at a point when the culture was dominated by old white dudes, and what you start to see is that as society changed in the sixties and seventies, you're going to start seeing obituaries change, and it's that's really kind of fascinating view on how obituaries work, um, and there's also a montage because it was made in 2016 there's just a montage of all of these obituaries of famous people who died uh and like one of them being of course leonard nimoy ah uh, so that was the slight star trek connection uh, and it's a, it's a really good doc it's only like 90 95 minutes long uh and uh, i i really do recommend it it is just kind of a fascinating look at something that i hadn't considered much before uh and it and it, and it also is there's just something great about seeing the process of like someone trying to figure out how to sum up the life of the guy that advised JFK for his first TV debate. Mm -hmm. And then the argument that ensues with the editors about, is this person like important enough to warrant 500, 800, a thousand words of a biography. Um, And there are, there's just like really kind of fun, morbid asides. Like they say, whoever the first obituary get always gets comma dies in their headline and they say because then you can just assume like all the other people will also have died mm. <laughs> you don't need you don't need to specify that the rest of the people on the obituary page have passed away yeah yeah absolutely um where can we find this documentary ed in the u.s it's streaming on amazon prime so i think that would be the first port of call mm-hmm. uh and i'm sure i'm sure it's available for, for rental yeah okay cool uh, thanks to everyone for listening this week. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please write us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Home, all of those places. Subscribe to us, recommend us to a friend. Uh, help, you know, helps us grow the audience, find new people. Uh, you can uh, you can follow us on Twitter at at SRS underscore podcast, and we are also on Facebook. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me. 